everybody. Luke Copeland here. Welcome to Bible Banter. Uh, unfortunately, we, I will not be joined by Eric today. He is up north seeing family because his mother passed away this weekend. So I encourage you all to keep him and his family in your prayers. Um, fortunately, there are lots of other interesting people to talk to. And one of the most interesting people I know is here today, my friend, John Roller. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit later how I know John. But first, John, if you would just introduce yourself, tell us who you are. Okay, well, uh, I'm all over Facebook uh, with my full name, John Herschel Roller. Uh, and if you want to waste time, we can talk about how I got that middle name. Uh, but I am an Advent Christian minister and have been for um, 42 years. Uh, and I'm currently serving at First Advent Christian Church in Hickory, North Carolina. But that's about the sixth church that I've served at, full time. And also I worked for several years at the Advent Christian General Conference offices in Charlotte. Good. And the way that I know John, uh, many ways that I could, many connections I have to John, that's that's one of the great things about being an Advent Christian is the six degrees of separation are more like six degrees of connection. You know everyone in six different ways. Um, but the, the first time I met John, he was the primary teacher, the speaker or evangelist at my church camp when I was what, nine, ten years old? Junior camp. <laughs> so John has been a voice in uh, in my life for a long time and recently reconnected with John when I moved down here. Uh, and John is one of my favorite people to talk to. Not only is he very intelligent, um, but John is a good conversational partner. He's not afraid to ask uh, difficult questions. Uh, he's not afraid to sort of throw a wrench into your thinking and challenge a way that you might be uh, ha have something sort of set up in your mind. And also, John's got some sort of quirky ideas, so there's lots to disagree about. So I always, I always enjoy talking to John, and I'm looking forward to talking to him today. Um, but we're really in for a treat today. Anytime I talk to John, I, I am edified by the conversation. But today we really get to bask in John's expertise, because John, uh, at least in my experience, is one of the most knowledgeable Advent Christian historians within the denomination. Um, I've probably done enough flattering of John. Why don't we uh, go ahead and start? Can I talk about you? Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. So we met at the junior camp, like you said, and uh, I will say all the same high praise stuff. Luke was the outstanding Bible student among the young uh, campers that I had that year or any year that I served at junior camp. Um, he always was right with me when we were having biblical topics, and he raised some of the most fascinating questions, and his answers were wild and enjoyable. And I just, it was really a pleasure having Luke um, in my classes when I was uh, teaching camp. And that was a long time ago. And then um, he sort of went off of my radar scope when he went into the music ministry um, because that wasn't um, a, a, a world that I moved in. Um, but then uh, every once in a while, I'd run into his father, Bob Copeland, and he would kind of give me an update on what Luke and Ross and the others are doing these days. And, uh, uh, so I, I had a vague idea what was going on. And then all of a sudden he showed up in Lenore, North Carolina, just 20 miles from me, uh, pastoring a church that had been pastored by another old and dear friend of mine for many, many years, uh, Ed Neal. And um, Ed and I go way, way back. So it's been great to get reconnected, reacquainted with Luke. And as we have our, uh, our district minister's lunches, 
um, we usually manage to sit pretty close and, and have some uh, some pretty high powered freewheeling conversations yeah. over pizza or, or whatever. I've had to, I've actually had I don't know if John has noticed this, but I've had to consciously make the decision that many of these pastors lunches to not sit next to John, because if I do, he's the only one I speak to. Exactly. Um, so let's go ahead and get into this. And obviously, like there's so much you could say. So I'm going to try to do my best today, John, not to, to um, necessarily lead the conversation, but to curate it and sort of give us some some guidance so so that we uh, are get out of here on time. Um, could you try to give us the condensed two or three minute version of Advent Christian history? What are sort of the key watershed moments that everyone should know about if they want to understand Advent Christianity? I could, but before I do that, could I make a quick disclaimer about me being such an expert? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm actually uh, a member of uh, a task force called the Advent Christian History Task Force that was set up in 1997 at the General Conference meetings out in California that year. And the reason I was included in the task force was because I had recently uh, signed up for the job as the resource center coordinator, which meant I was the guy in charge of the books. So I was the guy who knew how to find the information when somebody asked for it, I could look it up. But it's not that I was an expert on the history, I was an expert on the books and I had only just recently become one. Mm -hmm. The rest of the task force consists of Dr. Bob Price, who is a legitimate salaried full-time historian. He teaches history at universities. Uh, Dwayne Crabtree, who is the curator of the Berkshire Collection at the Gordon Conwell Seminary. Um, and uh, uh, then ex officio, uh, Gordon Isaac, who teaches history at Gordon Conwell Seminary, and Justin Nash, because he's the uh, director of communication at General Conference. That's our task force. And my only claim to expertise at this point is that I'm a member of that task force. And as I say, only because I'm the guy who knows where the books are. Hmm. Now, the two minute version of, of Advent Christian history. Uh, in the uh, early part of the 19th century, there was a Baptist minister who studied the Bible and came to the conclusion uh, by, by methods that nowadays uh, would not be considered legitimate uh, that Jesus was going to return in 1843 or 44 and set up the millennial kingdom as promised in the book of Revelation. Uh, because nobody else believed this at the time, uh, he got a lot of invitations to come and speak and talk about his um, his beliefs, and he put up charts on the wall to explain how he'd come to them. And over a period of a couple of dozen years, um, over a million people were exposed to this message, and hundreds of thousands of them came to believe it. They were expecting Jesus to return, and eventually it was narrowed down to a specific date, October 22, 1844. When that didn't happen, the movement broke up into a lot of little pieces, and the Advent Christian Church is one of those pieces. Would that be a good uh, two-minute summary of Advent? No, Christian? that was that was that was great. That was, what a what a what a great starting point. Um, well, as I said, that summarizes the origin of the Advent Christian Church. Yeah. It doesn't mean the history of what happened to the church. So now, so now um, having sort of established the origin, give us another condensed two-minute version of Advent Christian history from that point to now. So, okay, so uh, after the Adventist or Millerite movement broke up uh, into all these little pieces, um, it took a long time for any of them to get themselves organized into denominations. Uh, one of the first that organized and, uh, and one of the few that has survived 
to this day is the Advent Christian Church, which was organized in 1860. So that's fully 16 years after the Great Disappointment. And it's before one of the other major branches of the movement, which is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, was organized. That didn't happen until 1863. Hmm. So, it so we, were, we were the first. Yeah. We were. It would be absolutely wrong for anybody to say that the Advent Christian Church is a branch off of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If anything, historically, it's the other way around. Mm. Now, the fact that they're so much bigger is what leads people to that misunderstanding. Right. Now, uh, who are some of our other, maybe you could call them cousins. What are some of the other movements that eventually came out of the Millerite movement, even if we were there first? Well, not many of them have survived. Um, when the Advent Christian Church uh, adopted another distinctive doctrine, besides the belief that Jesus would return sometime soon without saying when, uh, then there was uh, another group that rose up out of that same original movement that was called the Evangelical Adventist Church. And uh, they, um, they believed in, in all of the same things that the Advent Christian Church had believed in, except for this new doctrine, which was conditional immortality. And so by not believing in conditional immortality, they became the traditionalist Adventists. They were known as the Evangelical Adventists. And they, they maintained a ministry for several dozen uh, you know, years, but eventually their numbers just dwindled down to zero and they hmm. didn't exist anymore. Now, and, Carolyn just said, just said something really interesting. She said, Seventh-day Adventists claim we don't exist. Carolyn, please explain so we can respond. I don't know what that means. I, I, I assure them that we do. <laughs> absolutely exist. Uh, but what Carolyn probably means is the fact that Seventh-day Adventists um, simply call themselves Adventists hmm. and assert that anybody who isn't a Seventh-day Adventist isn't an Adventist. <laughs> I don't think I was aware of that. I've been fighting with them for uh, at least um, 50 years, longer than I've been an Advent Christian. When I was first exposed to Seventh-day Adventists, I heard this claim, and I knew enough about Advent Christians, although I was not one myself, to argue with them, to tell them the, the correct version of the history, and to say that it's unfair um, for them to make a claim like that just because they happen to be so big. Right. Uh, I, I compare them to the playground bully, who thinks <laughs> that the whole playground belongs to him, and other people have no right to be on the playground because it's his playground. And if Adventism is their playground and we're not allowed to be on it, you know, then they're, they're behaving like that bully. Because, in fact, we were there first before they came. See, this is this is why John's a good guest for the show, because he doesn't mince words. Uh, Eric, Eric and I will ever be particularly uh... Seventh-day Adventist friends, by the way. Some <laughs> of them have been convinced by my argument and are even willing to reproduce it in their own internal discussions with each other. All right. Yeah. Um, so we could get we could go like real deep into the weeds here and we'll definitely leave time at the end that we can go any direction you want to go. But there are a few uh, kind of key topics I wanted to make sure that we touched. Sure. So the next one I wanted next question I wanted to ask you is what are some of the common misconceptions about Advent Christian history? What are the things that you most often find people either get wrong or simply don't know or misunderstand that it's um, you think it's important to clarify? Well, we've already talked about the fact that uh, people think we're a branch off of the Seventh-day Adventists, and we've thoroughly disproved that. Uh, so that's one. Um, and, and some people simply think that the name is just, uh, you know, nowadays people use all kinds of names. 
So people think that by having the word Advent on the sign, they think that we are Seventh-day Adventists. And I had a, a great uh, conversation one time with a Seventh-day Adventist who called up the church and wanted to know when services were. Uh, this was on a Saturday morning early. And so I went through the whole thing about our church and and, and uh, he was delighted that the service was as late as 11 o'clock because it gave him a chance. <laughs> to and uh, we were just about to hang up and I said, well, great, see you tomorrow. And he said, what, tomorrow? He said, I thought you meant today. Aren't you Seventh-day Adventist? And I said, no, I'm an Advent Christian. And we had to back up and start the whole conversation all over again. So that's one mistake. Another mistake has to do with misunderstanding the doctrine of conditional immortality. And because of it, uh, some people uh, kind of like to boil that down and say, well, Advent Christians don't believe in hell. And therefore, they think we're the same thing as Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. They don't believe in hell. So now we have another example of a sort of piece of that original Millerite movement. And here's a part that's pretty controversial and that a lot of people don't like me for saying, but it's true. The Jehovah's Witnesses trace their origins to a man named Charles Taze Russell, who was originally baptized by an Advent Christian minister by the name of Nelson Barber, uh, wanted to be a, a Bible study leader, uh, home Bible studies and things like that, under the auspices of an Advent Christian church, sought a minister's license, just like you did, Luke, uh, and like I did, uh, to have some authorization to be able to do this, was denied the license because his doctrine wasn't sufficiently Advent Christian. And in a huff, he wrote off and started his own church. And wow. It, so so the Jehovah's Witnesses, they came out of a, a, a an Advent Christian reject, is what you're telling me. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> and so it's not surprising that some of the doctrines are similar in that Charles Davis Russell learned those doctrines from an Advent Christian background. But it's also not surprising that they're very different because they're different enough that he wasn't given a minister's license. And um, we've had many people that have applied for minister's licenses and haven't gotten them and have gone off and served in other denominations or not served at all. Uh, he went off and started his own church. So that's how the Jehovah's Witnesses came about. And, and another thing to say to that, too, in fairness to our current day Jehovah's Witnesses, is that they themselves don't recognize how much their movement and its beliefs have changed since the days of Russell. So when Russell died, uh, the movement was headed by another man named Judge Rutherford. And Rutherford made some changes in the doctrines. When, when Rutherford died, it was taken over by a man named Nathan Knorr nor made some changes in the doctrines. This has gone on now for generations. And so modern Jehovah's Witnesses, Russell would probably not recognize most of the things they believe as being his doctrines. Mm -hmm. Now, Tom says that he has to share this whole story with Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to the door, and that's a lot of fun. Now, Tom says something interesting. I don't want this to devolve into a discussion of uh, of those, those other maybe cousins, we could call them. Uh, um, but SDAs think William Miller's date was correct. I don't know enough about Seventh-day Adventism to understand that. Well, uh, that's true. That is what they think. And in fact, the, the major theological difference at the beginning of um, th this breakup uh, between Advent, the group that later became Advent Christians and the group that later became Seventh-day Adventists was the question, date and event. 
uh, did we have the date right and the event wrong or the date wrong and the event right? And so that's, that's how those two groups broke off from each other. And then later developments led to what they are now. So whereas Advent Christians say the date was wrong, the event, the second coming was right, Seventh-day Adventists say the exact opposite, that the date was right, October 22, 1844, the event was wrong. It wasn't the date for the second coming of Christ. It was the date for something else. Hmm. Next thing I, I wanted to do, and this will sort of be the end of my agenda, and then we can have a little bit more of a free conversation that you can even maybe even guide where you want it to go. Um, but before I go off script, I wanted to make sure we have at least one story time with Uncle John. And what I mean by that is you, because of your uh, um, encyclopedic knowledge of Advent Christian history, have so many delightful like stories about you know wacky things that happened 50 and 100 years ago that I love to listen to. So I know it's a little bit uh, on the spot, but could you maybe recall one of those particularly interesting stories within our history and recount them for my enjoyment and the audience as well? Sure, and always when I'm asked this question, I love to tell this story. Uh, Joseph P.C. Johnson wrote it up as an article in the Advent Christian Witness some years ago, so the documentation is all there. Uh, but the story, as I learned it, is that in the early days of um, the, the 20th century, uh, when prohibition was in effect, um, there was always, of course, the problems between the revenuers, those are some people from the, the government, um, and the moonshiners, the people who made their own um, illegal alcohol, uh, which tended to be not located in the urban areas, but way out in the rural areas. So at the same time, the Advent Christian Church was involved in trying to do missionary work in parts of the United States where their denomination hadn't yet penetrated. So one of the early Advent Christian preachers got in a little uh, rowboat or skiff of some kind and started paddling upriver uh, somewhere, I think, in Florida and getting getting uh, far and far away from the city and into the you know woods. Uh, he spotted a cabin up on top of the hill and uh, so he, he you know parked his, his little boat and started climbing the hills he was going to go up and preach to whoever was in that cabin in the hopes of starting a, a revival in that area that might eventually lead to the planting of a church this was standard operating procedure for having christian ministers in that day and age well as he's approaching the cabin uh, out comes the moonshiner with one of those long rifles that they're famous for and uh so uh, here's the preacher, and he's all dressed in his suit and tie. He looks just like a revenuer to the <laughs> to the moonshiner, and uh, he starts shouting, "No, no, I'm not a revenuer. I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher." And so the guy pointed the rifle at him and said, "You are preach," and he did. <laughs> and that's how one of the churches in Florida got started. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Man, that's incredible. All right. All right. Well, we're right here in the United States. <laughs> that, no, that is that is a truly American uh, story about starting a church right there. Started at the end of a gun. Wow. Well, we're, we're going to continue the conversation. I would say at this point, uh, we're going off script. So, John, if you want to sort of jump in at any point, um, do so. And also, folks in the comments section, if you have any questions or remarks, uh, joining the conversation. I think one thing that came to my mind was you were talking about some of our distant cousins. 
uh, and the way that their beliefs have changed. To the best of your understanding, do Advent Christians today, for the most part, believe what they did um, 150 years ago, or have we undergone a similar transformation? Uh, we have undergone some transformation, and uh, you used a very important phrase there by saying that something to the fact most Advent Christians or Advent Christians generally, because one of the things that we have stuck to quite stubbornly uh, for that 150 years is the idea of being non-creedal. And by that we mean we haven't got a written up statement um, that says this is what you have to believe in order to join an Advent Christian church and thus to be classified as an Advent Christian. So that means that church membership is up to each local assembly. Uh, they decide who they allow to become members of their church on whatever basis they want. And as people move from one church to another, they may carry some of their ideas with them or they may not. So there's a diversity of opinion on almost all theological subjects and other subjects um, among the group of people who can be called Advent Christians by definition, because they're members of a local Advent Christian church. And so that non-credalism has uh, allowed change to take place <laughs> because at, Buzz, at, Buzz, I need I need to I need to make interject for a moment for any okay. credalists who are listening and jumping out of their chairs. Don't worry. We're going to bring John back another time so we can fight with him about creeds. That's sure. not what we're doing today. I'm just saying historically, historically, this is what it is. And and what this non-creedalism has done is it has permitted this, uh, it has permitted diversity of opinion, and it has permitted change in opinion. Um, so one example of that, we do have a document. We have a thing called the Declaration of Principles. Uh, it's, it's stated right in all of the introductory material to the Declaration of Principles that it's not uh, it's not a statement of faith. It's not a creed. It's not required that anybody believe all of these things, but they are a sort of summary of what most people believe. In other words, there's something that passed a majority vote at a conference somewhere. Okay. Uh, and so one of those articles was put in um, in the early part of the 20th century to allow for Advent Christians to claim to be conscientious objectors when it came to the military draft. And it was worded very strongly at the time that Advent Christians don't believe in war. And if an Advent Christian refuses to serve, you know, he's doing the right thing and so on. And then came World War II. And as a result of World War II, lots of Advent Christian young men and some women uh, volunteered to serve in the military and go help defeat the Nazis. And when they came back and started coming to Advent Christian churches, uh, word started getting around that we need to change this article because there's there's another option. There are other ways to serve besides um, refusing military service altogether. So now we have a, a sort of um, uh, tamped down version of that that says that when an Advent Christian decides on the basis of scripture and conscience either to bear arms or to refuse to do so, local churches should extend fellowship and nurture. And it gives Advent Christians the legal ability to say, um, I'm a pacifist and I, I can't um, you know, take up arms. Uh, and, and that's because my church teaches that. And yet it also allows for someone to volunteer, serve, take up arms, become a hero, 
and say, well, I'm an Advent Christian and I'm doing what my church says is okay to do. So that's an example of a change that has taken place as a result of the diversity that occurs because of non-credalism. Now, if any if anyone watching the stream has the spiritual gift of Photoshop, I would love to see a doctored image of Eric Reynolds' face on the Kool-Aid man holding a creed. That would be the greatest thing. <laughs> I I want it bad. So please, if you have that ability, please make that. Well, let me say this too about that, though, because when we do get around to discussing this, remember, non-credalism means that credalists are also welcome. Absolutely. They can become members of Advent Christian churches, and they can continue to be credalists within the Advent Christian Church. That's not a problem. It it is it is true. It is true that um, uh, sort of your camp has never made an attempt to do away with the credalists. I, I as, as a credalist myself, I will acknowledge I am the aggressor here. All now, right. we'll have that discussion when you, when you want to. We will. But in the interest of, of uh, sticking with history for today, let me ask you this question. Um, why history? Why, why should we even bother to know it? Because I think it's easy to sort of look at this stuff and go, it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago. It's not relevant today. What do you think is the value of knowing not just history, but Advent Christian history? Nobody can answer that question better than what George Santayana said very famously, that those who will not learn from the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. Hmm. And so history is always important. And, you know, the, the only limit to the amount of history that you want to study is the, is the particular context that you want to study it in. So if, you, if you're looking for the mistakes that a denomination can make, Advent Christian history is plenty full of them. Hmm. What, what would you say are some of those mistakes? What are some of the mistakes of our history that are important for us to learn from? Obviously, at the very beginning, setting a date for the coming of Christ. Long before there were Advent Christians, there were Adventists who focused on a specific date and, and uh, were disappointed greatly as a result. And, and we didn't learn that lesson right away. The group that became the Advent Christian Church woke up from the great disappointment, and they said the event was right, second coming of Christ, the date was wrong, 1844. The right date is 1854. And they went through another 10 years and another disappointment before they learned that lesson. Um, so then we perhaps have taken uh, maybe a little too haughty an attitude toward all of the groups since then that have gone and set more dates. Jehovah's Witnesses have been famous for setting dates. And every time they do, we have in Christians go, shouldn't do that we learned that lesson uh, but not just not just adventists uh, you know most famously in in the 21st century harold camping of the family radio whatever it was called uh predicted a, a date for october um 21st of 2012 and he spent hundreds of millions of other people's dollars uh, putting up billboards and predicting you know that jesus would return on that date and uh mm -hmm. happened so um and, and Advent Christians say, well, you know, we, we study our own history and, and we know the futility of that experiment. So we're not going to get involved in it anymore. So that's one example. Um, and I'm sure there are many other similar mistakes that we've made. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're going to get back to this creedalism business one of these days because I think, I think uh, any church setting up a creed is a mistake. <laughs> See, this is this is the other this is the other reason John 
we're gonna we're gonna fail to learn the lessons of history. We're gonna fail to see what happened um, to the original Catholic, that is to say, worldwide church, uh, when they set up a creed and started killing each other in the streets. We're gonna see lots of mistakes that have been made uh, if we study history. Now, this this is the other um, reason John is great for the show is he um, he he speaks his positions very strongly. That I think I think that's I think that's an honest. I think that's a real question. No, but we should we should discuss these. I speak very strongly, right? <laughs> I think some might say you're a bit creedal in your non-creedalism, but we'll uh, we'll save that accusation for another day. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness. In all seriousness, it's I, I think I think I would rather have the discussion from the strong positions, right? We obviously need to apply nuance when we talk about these things, um, but it's it's if we want to have like a good fight, the kind of fight that's worth having, we need to be willing to take strong positions so that we can actually discuss something. So I appreciate that about you. Vice versa. So so let me let me ask you this. Um, since there is, let me just read the comments real quick and make sure we're not missing it. Okay. No, I can't see the comments. I don't know what comments you're talking about. Uh, the. I got a comment. Oh, that's okay. I, I can read them. I think some of the comments right now are about creedalism. So we're going to save them. Sorry, folks. We're going to save that discussion. I want. Right I I want Eric to be here for that one because Eric really knows how to have a fight, and and I that's what I that's what I want. I I I right. view I view theological fighting as uh, as edifying. Okay, yeah, I can handle. We'll, we'll save we'll save that fight for another day, despite the fact that the comment section is ready to go. They they want blood. <laughs> I primed the pump. I'm sorry. No, no no no. We have to look. I think some of the stuff we can't avoid when we're talking about our history, right? It's not like we're we're not just, we're not. It's a history of doctrines, and uh, and I was gonna I was gonna say something philosophical about that somewhere along the line. Uh, somebody else, I don't know if it was Santiana or somebody similar to him, made this made this statement that um, uh, little minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, and great minds discuss ideas. Now you, you've probably heard that saying somewhere along the line. Um, and when we talk about um, the church and when we talk about history, uh, we tend to ride around on those three things um, because history can be the history, that, which is a sequence of events that's dealing with ideas. So it, the history of ideas is somewhere between events and ideas, but then there's also the history of people and, and the history of the church is very much a history of people, and, um, and then it can drift down toward that, you know, end of it. So, it, you know, it, it all kind of blends in together a little bit. And so we've been talking a lot about the history of ideas. I haven't brought up a lot about names. Um, but one thing I was going to say about that is, and this is part of my philosophy, is that um, although it is people who promote ideas, the ideas themselves shouldn't be deemed, you know, to be true or not true because of the people who do the promoting. Mm. So uh, in logic, that's called you know, the fallacy of the ad hominem argument. And uh, the ad hominem argument would go something like this. Um, unbelief in the Trinity 
is something that's happened in the Advent Christian Church. That's an event. It's historical. We can we can discuss it sometime. And it was promoted by Miles Grant. And, and therefore, um, because Miles Grant was wrong about this thing, that everything that Miles Grant said was wrong. And so then if you quote Miles Grant, you go, oh, no, no, you can't quote him. He's that awful non-Trinitarian. See, that's, that's an ad hominem argument. Something else that Grant may have said, it's true or not true based on its own inherent meaning, mm. not based on the fact that he said it. Mm. So we got to watch out for that a lot when we discuss the people aspect of Advent Christian history, because the Advent Christian Church has always consisted of people. And uh, those people, uh, especially in a non-credalist church, they've had a wide variety of strange beliefs and opinions. Mm -hmm. So when you when you lauded me at the beginning and said what a wonderful Bible teacher I was and how terribly knowledgeable I was about everything, and also how exciting it was because I held controversial opinions and stated them boldly, mm -hmm. watch out for the trap of saying, well, that must be true because John Roller said it was, or... Well, that must be false because John <laughs> so you can't go there. It, 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 the truth is the truth on its own merits, regardless of who believed it. Well, I think I think the ad hominem is especially um, harmful for the Advent Christians because of our origins. I mean, how many people would look at the failures of William Miller and say, therefore, anything that came out of the movement must be illegitimate? And we would, of course, scream foul and say, well, no, William Miller was wrong about that and right about this. So if we're going to take our own history seriously, we have to take that approach. Exactly. Now, Tom, Tom has an interesting question. He asks, does Uncle John know anything about the forward movement? Yes, uh, but not nearly as much as my friend David E. Dean does. Uh, and the reason I say that is because David actually did a, um, a paper. It may have been a dissertation for his master's or his doctorate. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, he did a formal analysis of the forward movement. And so he knows everything there is to know about it. So what little I know about the forward movement is basically uh, what rubbed off on me from conversations with him when he was doing that research. Uh, but the forward movement was an attempt in the early part of the 20th century, and I'm gonna say around 1920, sometime in that general area, to get the Advent Christian denomination more centrally organized. See, up until that point, from 1860 to about 1920, there was very little organization beyond the local churches and what we call the conferences, which is groups of a local church, in some cases, uh, territorial groups like the size of a state, you know, South Carolina conference, for example, or something like that. Uh, and in other cases, it may be part of a state or an overlap of more than one state or just have their own borders. Um, but beyond that, there was very little organization. And the general conference up until then had been only a meeting, only literally a conference, just a, a place for people to get together and confer. Very little was actually done by an organization called the General Conference. And so the forward movement was an attempt to, to get the denomination more organized, more um, centralized, and a little bit more standardized. And uh, for, for reasons which I don't know all the details of, and I say uh, David Dean knows much better than I do, the forward movement was sort of regarded as a kind of failure uh, in achieving all of its objectives. 
And yet, as I look back over it now from 100 years later, it seems to me like it, it moved in the direction to which we have gone for the last 100 years because we're certainly more organized now than we were before the Forward Movement Act. Right. But it took some other movements, too, in between then and now. Now, now your mention of David Dean, I think, raises another question. Um, so I sort of lauded you as the great Advent Christian historian that I know, but who are some of the the others that you know that you would say, these are the people that really know our history well? Well, my David E. Dean's father, David A. Dean, and you've got to distinguish between the two deans, but uh, Dr. David A. Dean um, was um, part of the history committee, and he authored the, the text within the history uh, committee series about missions. And so he was the premier historian of Advent Christian missions, but in order to get there, he had to be an, an amazingly advanced historian on the Advent Christian church altogether. And like myself, by the way, he was not born and raised in the denomination. He came into it from outside, and it was his fascination with what it was that he had joined that caused him to study so much and to become one of our leading theologians and historians. I, I would love to follow in his footsteps, but um, uh, I'm too old now to get the head start that I need. Before him, there was Clyde Hewitt. Uh, he wrote three of the books that are the standard history of the Advent Christian Church nowadays. Um, I've, I've got them right here if you want to see them. Sure, yeah, show them to us. Uh, Midnight and Morning, and then the sequel, Responsibility and Response, and Devotion and Development. These three were originally pictured as part of a seven-part series and Clyde Hewitt wrote them, and then he died, and so the others never got written. But the fourth book in the series was published as Who Will Go For Us by David A. Dean, and that's the history of missions. And I'm not sure what particular emphases the last three books were supposed to be, um, but they never got written. Uh, okay, so then there's the other members of the history committee, Dr. Robert Price. Um, he is a historian, as I said, by profession. He taught history at the University of Chicago. He taught history at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. And so in the process of doing that, he also taught Advent Christian history. Um, Gordon Isaac, uh, also on the committee, uh, is a specialist in Reformation history. And, you know, one of the things about the Advent Christian Church that's probably little known even by Advent Christians is the extent to which the Advent Christian Church views itself as a part of the Reformation that started with Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Um, and the idea is that that Reformation continues to the present. So that we're things that are always needing to be reformed. Um, and so there are, there are many Advent Christians who proudly claim that they're part of the Reformed tradition. But there are others who say we are part of the continuing Reformation. In which you know, we might even reject some things that some of the earlier Reformers concluded and yet still say we're part of the Reformation because the reforming needs to keep going on. So there's that, and Gordon Isaac is an expert on everything Reformation um, and Luther and also on Advent Christian history. Uh, Dwayne Crabtree, who's the curator of the Advent Christian collection at um, Gordon Conwell Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Um, he was an English teacher at uh, Berkshire Christian College back in the day. Um, but he also took an interest in Advent Christian history and, um, you know, because of his acquaintance with the books, 
mm-hmm. sort of like me. Um, he's he's much more an expert than I am on uh, on details of history. Um, I'm like Dr. Dean in that I came in from outside the denomination, was kind of curious as to what it was I was getting myself into, and just read a lot of books. Yeah. Now there were books before then. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Well, I was going to say the books that existed before uh, I came in were books like, did I get this right? A Brief History of William Miller, which tells that part of the story. classic book called The History of the Second Advent Message by Isaac Welcome. And and then back around the time of the forward movement, there was this book called, you can barely see that, Advent Christian History. It was written by Albert C. Johnson. Yeah. Here's a, here's a curious tidbit for you. I don't know what, what category this comes under, but notice that name, Albert C. Johnson. Mm-hmm. The initial would be A.C., just like Advent Christian. That was actually a thing. Um, for a couple of generations, it was popular um, to name Advent Christian children with the initials AC. Wow. And you can go all over the denomination, and you can find people today whose initials are AC and who might not even realize that it's because they were named after somebody whose initials were AC from back in the day when it was popular to name Advent Christian children AC. See? See, that's back when people were really serious about their denominationalism. That that's, that's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yep. Now, um, let me ask you this. Let's say someone's listening and they're in an Advent Christian church, um, but they don't really know any of this history, or maybe someone who's not an Advent Christian and just wants to know more. Where's the best place for them to start, right? Instead of instead of offering 10 books, what's uh, one resource that you would say this is the best starting point? Absolutely. You got to start with Midnight and Morning by Clyde E. Hewitt. And this should still be available from uh, the Advent Christian General Conference office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, But there are many copies that exist in Advent Christian churches, uh, in their libraries, in ministers' libraries. So if you have any connection with the Advent Christian church at all, it shouldn't be hard to get a hold of a copy of this book. And um, that will get you started. Now, the comment section, people keep uh, uh, throwing out tidbits about Miles Grant. So now you're going to have to tell me a story about Miles Grant, because I'm going to be honest. Until this conversation, I had never even heard the name. Well, Miles Grant uh, was probably most famous for being the editor of The World's Crisis, which was the official magazine of the Advent Christian Church in the early days and which has a continuous history that goes up to the magazine that's nowadays called the Advent Christian Witness. So if you get the Advent Christian Witness magazine uh, in the mail quarterly or if you pick it up at church, uh, you can trace back issue by issue to when that magazine was originally known as the World's Crisis. And for many, many years, the editor of that magazine was Miles Grant. Now that was before the forward movement and that was before all of this organization and the World's Crisis was uh, basically a self-supporting magazine that you know um, paid for itself by subscriptions. People sent in so much money a year and they printed magazines with it. And uh, so Grant uh, used the magazine, um, as many editors do, uh, as a means of promoting his particular theological interests. And whereas nowadays the, the Witness magazine is much more Uh, broad-based. It's not just theology, but they talk about uh, Christian living and how to get along with your family and, you know, 
ministry in the community and lots of other topics like that. Originally, it was pretty much theology. It was it was mostly about what do we believe about God and about the nature of man and about our responsibility to um, you know witness in the world and things like that. So what what's famous about Miles Grant as editor of the World's Crisis was that he did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he he took a few verses of the Bible um, very literally and said just some expressions in the Bible very literally and applied a little bit of what has sometimes been called rationalism to it. So, for example, if Jesus is the son of God, then Jesus cannot be God because you can't be your own son. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And so he, uh, he kind of led a whole movement within the Advent Christian Fellowship um, to, to reject the doctrine of the Trinity in favor of uh, either what might be called historically Arianism, um, which is the belief that uh, Jesus was created by God in eternity past. Um, so he was already there at the foundation of the world, um, but he wasn't God. Uh, or Socinianism, which is the idea that, that he was created by God in the womb of Mary. Uh, and so either of those two branches um, could be called non-Trinitarianism and uh, achieved a maximum level, I would say, of almost 50% in the Advent Christian denomination around the turn of the 20th century, 1900. There might have been, nobody's done a real survey, but just to pick a number to illustrate, there might have been maybe 48% of the Advent Christians who agreed with Miles Grant and 52% who held to the doctrine of the Trinity. It was that close. Don't know those numbers are exact, but you know, along that line. Since then, the non-Trinitarian movement had been in decline until I would say now, it's more like 9% of the denomination compared to 91%. Right. Wow, that's an amazing transformation. Um, um, but it's very gradual. There was there was right. no there was nobody like Miles Grant on the other side of the coin, uh, who in, imposed this movement to uh, accept the Trinity. What what just gradually happened was more and more people probably came into the denomination from a background of some other church that had taught the Trinity, and they didn't give up that belief and the. The denomination didn't expect them to, and most of the people there already were, and so just gradually, uh, there was no school teaching Miles Grant's theology, whereas there were schools like Berkshire Christian College and Aurora College um, that taught Trinitarian theology. Hmm. Now, Matt Matt Rice asked an interesting question. He says, Hewitt's book was written almost 40 years ago. What has transpired since then that has yet to receive a formal, in-depth history? Specifically, what ideas or debates have occurred within the denomination? Wow. There have been several, um, but those have been recorded only in magazines and and periodical journals like the Henceforth magazine that's published at uh, General Conference now. Uh, have they have you know tracked some of the debates and and changes um, but there has not been a book uh, nobody has written a book on the history of the Advent Christian Church 1987 to present 
So there's a task that lies ahead for the history committee on which I sit and nobody has commissioned us to do that task. So we're not doing it yet. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'd be willing to contribute ideas if such a project were wanting to be taken on because I've been here all that time. I came into the denomination in 1978. So this book, Midnight and Morning, and the others affiliated with it, they were published after I was already in the denomination. I was already pastoring. Um, like everybody else, I got a copy of this new book and read it and learned more about Advent Christian history. And then since then, I've been part of Advent Christian history. So, And there are lots of other people besides me in that same position, some of which were born and raised in the church and whose knowledge of it goes much further back than me. So it's a project waiting to be done if anybody wants to do it. Now, what are, what are some of the debates? <laughs> Greedalism. <laughs> That's been recently, and I, I mean within the last 10 years, that's been called into more serious question than ever before. Um, there had been several attempts um, dating back into the 20th century uh, to get the Advent Christian Church to formally adopt the National Association of Evangelicals Statement of Faith as its Statement of Faith. And that was voted on at several different general conference meetings. It was always voted down until uh, 2017. So there's a, there's a watershed moment when the General Conference formally adopted the NAE Statement of Faith as a Statement of Faith for the General Conference. And what a lot of people may not understand about the polity within the Advent Christian Church is that the fact that the General Conference adopted it doesn't mean that every local church agrees with it or that right. every individual agrees with it, or that they're expected to. Yeah. It's, it only, it only, if the general conference speaks only for the general conference. Mm -hmm. It doesn't speak for all of the other agencies within the denomination because of our fairly unique, um, what I like to call upside down pyramid structure. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is uh, ultimate, ultimate authority rests with the individual members. Uh, they yield some of that authority to their local congregations, who yield some of it to their conferences, who yield some of it to the regional associations, who yield some of it to the general conference, which is down at the little point at the bottom of the pyramid. And as some people have pointed out, um, my analogy is great because an object constructed like that is going to have difficulty standing. <laughs> We've stood that way for 160 years, but whether we can continue to stand that way, who knows? Now, um, there is one more question I wanted to ask you, but before I ask the final question, is there anything else that you want to say about uh, this subject that we weren't able to cover? Not, not creepism, but uh, the history. Yeah, yeah, we've done a, we've done a good job talking about that. I, I, I think so. <laughs> really, things that could be told, but um, lots of lots and lots of stories. Maybe, maybe if I would say one thing, uh, it would be the, uh, the missionary emphasis of the Advent Christian Church. We haven't discussed that a lot. But when the Advent Christian Church was first founded in 1860, the United States of America was right on the verge of the single most crucial event that ever occurred in its history. Anybody know what that is? Uh, the Civil War. The Civil War did more to mold and shape America as we know it today than any other single thing that ever happened to America. 
And so for five years, the Advent Christian General Conference of America did almost nothing. And the local churches did whatever they could to survive the war. And in 1865, um, after the war was over, uh, a general conference was reconvened. And now they said, well, now that, um, now that the war is over, we can get ourselves a little bit more organized than we did five years ago when we met to organize. Uh, what, should, what should we do together as a general conference? What can, what can we do that it would take the support of Advent Christians all over the recently reunited United States of America um, to do? And the answer was missionary work and uh, to spread the gospel um, to places where it hadn't yet been spread. And the first um, target, if you want to use that terminology, for Advent Christian mission work was declared at that meeting to be, quote, the freedmen of the South. In other words, African Americans who had been slaves and had recently been set free. It was, it was thought by at least the people who attended that meeting that these people uh, in their millions had never really been exposed to the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd been handed a perverted form of the Christian religion uh, that was mostly about um, slaves obey your masters and very little else. Mm. Um, and so they needed to hear the real message of salvation and they, having Christians felt, they ought to hear it in our context. They ought to hear it in the context of, uh, of Jesus coming again. Um, and so uh, missionaries were commissioned to, to go south of the border into the area that was under reconstruction. And uh, instead, of, instead of trying to rebuild the economy, um, try to reach African-Americans. Uh, dozens of churches were established. Uh, at least three whole conferences were established that consisted of nothing but African-Americans. And um, unfortunately, most of that work has since declined and faded away till that really all that's left of it is the Advent Christian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. But in the meantime, what also happened was that other general conferences decided on other mission fields and uh, Advent Christian um, missionaries were sent to India, to Philippines, to Japan, to Malaysia, and uh, eventually toward the end of the 20th century to about 30 countries. And uh, we now find Advent Christian churches in uh, Latin America, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, um, really everywhere except um, South America and Antarctica. Hmm. So the last lots of room for more. There's yeah. 30 or five countries out of what did I do? Out of um, 200 and some, we got a lot of room for expansion. Yeah, yeah, still, still lots of going and telling to do. Yes. The last question I wanted to ask you is a pretty unfair one and maybe even an impossible one to answer, but uh, I think it's one of the most interesting. So I'll just fire away and I'll let you do what you do so well and uh, juggle the... <laughs> but I, so here's, here's the, what, well, I think this is true. I think it is true that um, as much as we would like to say history is just the facts, in order to do his history, you have to do some interpretation. There is, there is part science, which is the times and the dates and the people, and then there is part what you might call art or 
subjective, the subjective nature of history, history, which is I don't think you can do history without doing some interpretation, unless you're just going to literally list facts and dates. So here, here's my uh, big closing question. Where does Advent Christianity um, sit within history, and especially the history of the church? And it's difficult to say because we're not at the end. Like in some ways, I'm asking you to uh, look back on something we're in the middle of. Uh, mm -hmm. But looking at, you know, we might be right near the end of it. You never know. Right. Uh, but looking, but looking at the 150 years of the Evan Christian Church and the 2,000 years of the church, where do we fit? Are we just some misfits that uh, had to make our own place? Are we a reformation that didn't quite take off? What what are we in the scheme of Christian history? The early Advent Christians very much had a sense that they were an important part of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And one of their favorite um, biblical uh, passages was Jesus's parable of the virgins, uh, the, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. And one verse within that parable contains the expression that at midnight, the cry went out, behold, the bridegroom cometh. And that's when the virgins had to get up and trim their lamps and so on. Uh, the Advent Christians uh, at that era saw themselves as being the ones who gave the cry. We're the ones who are shouting out to the world, look, Jesus is coming again. We got to get ready. And uh, we've been trying to do that for more than 160 years, going all the way back to Miller's original proclamations in the 1830s. So for almost 200 years now, we've been the people who are trying to tell the world that we need to get ready for the coming of Jesus. Wow. Because other, other theologies may include the return of Christ as an appendix at the end of the book, but it's not central. It's not the main thing in their, in their uh, focus. That's, that, that's who that, we are. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I just said that's who we are. And, and, and we need to continue to be that. If we, if we lose that focus, if we get tired um, and we start to fall asleep, then we'll be the foolish virgins. Hmm. Because you know, the oil ran out and they were sleeping. And then as the bridegroom came, they weren't ready for him. Yeah. So we need to be wise virgins. That's a that's a great closing that's a great closing statement and I think it, it highlights a conversation you and I had off air actually earlier today about the fact that um, perhaps the most important Advent Christian distinctive is the one in our name it's the Adventism it's the Absolutely. fact that it's the fact that we believe Christ could come today yeah which is which is why you know one here's another discussion we have so many other discussions. <laughs> But there, there have been discussions about changing the name of the denomination. This is named Advent Christian. It doesn't speak to anybody. Nobody understands what it means. It confuses us with Seventh-day Adventists. People don't want to come because they think we're a cult, etc., etc., etc. And and I'm one of the ones um, who says what we need to do is revive the word and make it plain to people that this is why we have this word in our name because it's important. Um, I'm, I'm not really taking a stand on the issue of should we change our name, although if we did, I'd want to find it uh, something more um, uh, meaningful than I've seen some churches around. You have a, you have a church up in uh, 
uh, Lenore, and I don't want to I don't want to speak too ill of them, and I'm sure they're doing a wonderful job reaching people for Christ. But the name of the church is Water Life. I tell you, as far as speaking to me, I thought it was an aquarium. <laughs> so the word water life said to me, I had no idea it was a church. And I, I wouldn't have gone there unless I wanted to see, you know, some sharks swimming around or something. So we need, if we're going to change our name, let's make it say something. Let's make it be a name that says something. Well, and, after, and I, after such a beautiful closing statement, I'm Christian. <laughs> After your beautiful closing statement, I want to throw one name into the hat. I'd like us to be called the Midnight Criers from henceforth. All right, I, I could I could deal with that. Um, <laughs> uh, my wife's church has chosen a shift in emphasis. Um, her church is called the Bible Christian Church, as opposed to the Advent Christian Church. What she's doing is she's taken our creed or our Declaration of Principles one step further back. And instead of dealing with Article 7 that says Jesus is coming again, she's dealing with Article 1 that says we believe that the Bible is the word of God. So we're the Bible Christian Church, and our Adventism flows out of that because it's what we believe the Bible says. So obviously, um, I was very much in favor of that as a choice. And interestingly, there wasn't anybody else. In all the names of churches, thousands of names of churches, there's nobody else called Bible Christian Church. So we got it. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to cut us off there or else uh, you and I could do this all afternoon. I always enjoy it. Especially with, with, the, with the coronavirus. I can't go anywhere. So. <laughs> well, 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 we'll definitely bring you on again. Um, may, maybe at least once we'll bring you on to fight, but also for just may, maybe uh, for some other reasons too, because I know uh, you're one of those guys that whenever I talk to you, even if I disagree at the end of the conversation, I'm better able to understand not only your position, but my own. Uh, it's, it's always edifying talking to you, John. Well, that's a high compliment. Thank you, and I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you, brother.